Hello, everyone, and welcome to a podcast of epic proportions. Here we cover software technology, developer problems, and solutions. We'll feature great guests and cover technologies that are changing the world. From episode to episode, we'll keep you glued to your headphones and speakers. So stay tuned to the Yellow Duck Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Yellow Duck Podcast for another wonderful conversation. Today I've got Igor Bugayenko uh, with me today. He's the CEO at Xerocracy.com, author of ElegantObjects.org, creator of Zold.io. He's investor at, at SeedRamp.com. He's uh, based on his Twitter. He's in Palo Alto, California. Uh, hello, Igor. How are you today? Hi. Thanks for inviting me here. I'm good. Thanks. Sure. Um, I, you know, the the way I found out about you sort of was obviously uh, through Twitter, and I really uh, liked some of your tweets, and I thought, hey, you've got an interesting perspective, and so I started doing more research on uh, your activities, and I decided to, you know, invite you and see if you'd you'd like to take part in this uh, podcast. That's great. That's how I found your invitation on Twitter. Okay. Okay. Popular popular platform now. Um, Twitter, I think, for at least for the tech industry, seems to be like a place where you can actually reach out to people, and people are pretty good at reaching, uh, responding back. So it seems like it used to be for something else, and now it's uh, it's gone into this. It's, it's become very popular for for people in the, generally in the tech industry and startups and things to use to to communicate, and um, uh, it's it's quite effective, really. I mean, I reach out to a lot of people on Twitter, and it's very effective. Yeah, for me, it's number one platform where I'm getting the majority of traffic while I'm promoting my blog posts. Honestly, so I tried all the possible platforms, including Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, you know, Reddit, uh, different sources. But Twitter is the most stable source of traffic. And do you think? I mean, what is the main thing about Twitter that that separates it from those other services that you mentioned? Well, they are less predictable. Twitter is more predictable. On Twitter, when I share my blog post, I more or less know how much traffic, how much interest I will get from it. Other platforms are, sometimes they can give you way more traffic, like Hacker News, for example, or Reddit, but it's less predictable. So you never know what's going to happen there. But on Twitter, it just works. On Facebook, it's not a good place for technical articles. It seems to me to be that way. So it's more like for personal stuff, for pictures, for maybe some political opinions, sharing some information about where I you know, was presenting some talks and conferences, that stuff. Uh, LinkedIn is, to my, in my opinion, it's a dying platform. It's more like a, for recurring. It's more like for finding, finding uh, you know, CVs, informations for recurrence. That's the only... The only value I'm getting from there is like invitations from recruiters, nothing else. So I don't think it's a really a platform now for sharing something interesting. And Twitter is, in my opinion, it's growing. Even though there are so many people that are saying that the platform is dying also, there's a less and less interest there. But it seems to me, for me, quite the opposite. So that the platform is becoming more and more, you know, better and better source of traffic for me. So I like it. When I, you know, without getting political, obviously, you know, the most powerful man in the U.S. is using Twitter all the time on a daily basis. Whether those tweets are are, are, are neg- good or bad is beside the point. I think it's great that uh, you know that um, Twitter has become sort of used by people that are actually uh, in 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 power, or and not just our, not just the president of the United States, but obviously because of that, other I think other uh, world leaders have sort of uh, decided that Twitter is something that they, they should also be using to communicate with their with their uh, constituency. So I think maybe that's uh, Twitter. It just seems to be like if I'm tw- if I'm messaging somebody on Twitter, I feel like really I'm probably going to reach that person. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I also wanted to say about this political thing, but I decided to skip that. But as since you mentioned that, uh, maybe that's because of that kind of movement or some lobby for this platform. But uh, technically, it works. It's quite stable. And you know what? They're not, if it's good or bad, I can't say, but they're not really paying a lot of attention to spam accounts and some fake accounts and all that stuff. They start to do that recently, but before that, it was, you know, you could buy like for $5, you could buy like a few thousand followers, a few, I don't know, a thousand retweets and all that stuff. So it was, it, while Facebook is fighting against that, it's so difficult to buy a fake followers on Facebook and they will cost you a lot. Or on YouTube, for example, it's, it's, it's getting difficult, more difficult every, every year. But on Twitter, up till recently, it was really inexpensive. It was the cheapest platform for fake followers and fake retweets fake retweets and likes and all that stuff. Maybe because of that, the platform is, you know, was popular and easy to use. I don't know, but <laughs> difficult to judge. Now, have yeah. you just uh, a real quick tangent, but I'm kind of interested in this because um, there's around, you know, there's over, I, I forget how many people are on earth now. There's like 7 billion people. So I'm wondering, would it make sense to just, you know, only allow one person to have one account, you know, sort of one something that would represent them as a human entity and that entity could only be linked to one Twitter account, one Facebook account, one LinkedIn account? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. Well, uh, it's difficult to, to say how this social world should be mapped to the real world, one-to-one -one or maybe one-to-many or many-to-one because it's a different world now. It's something which we haven't seen, which we haven't had for centuries, for years. And now all of a sudden we have this virtual world and it's difficult to say what are the right laws and rules which should exist there. But definitely, I'm sure that we should not try to map it one-on-one -on -one to the real world. Because I, I think maybe one out of five of my friends or people who I talk to, they have a few accounts on Twitter, a few accounts on, on, on Facebook. So they try to create some different personalities sometimes for different reasons, for business reasons, for uh, personal reasons. All this stuff. So I don't think it's right to uh, to just force people to. Again, I'm not an expert in this area, but it's. I don't think it's right to map people one to one, like real people to virtual people. But definitely, the platform should fight against uh, really fake accounts where there is no virtual person at all. It's just an account with no followers, no tweets, no no information. Just an account to follow other accounts and create the fake. Uh, the fake um, followership, that's the word. Right. I mean, I'm sure they have, I mean, they must have data scientists. They must have a lot of software engineers, people that could solve this problem. Um, maybe it has to do sort of with their business model, just that they don't want to solve the problem because it, you that's know, it saying. drives, yeah, maybe, it drives some sort of interest. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Maybe it's a good thing that they allow anyone to create as many accounts as possible and create that fake followership. Maybe it's good. I don't know. I mean, even Elon Musk, there's this parody Elon Musk, it's a uh, bored Elon Musk mm -hmm. and, you know, a ton of followers and it's not even, a, it has, it's not his official account, but people still, uh, I've seen some of the people that respond to it, they still sort of, you know, behave as though they're responding to Elon Musk. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a different, uh, different experience for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay, well, so let's get into these questions. I've got a list of questions prepared. Uh, I like to prepare questions just so it's sort of not a surprise. I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot. Um, I'm just interested in sort of getting your opinion on these things. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing is, what do you think of the current state of software recruitment? Uh, I think it's in trouble. 
and um, well, I wrote about that a few like a few years ago, and I keep saying about that. And and every time I I in every project we're trying to recruit people, we hit that problems, we see that problems. Uh, I think we are now uh, intentionally or not intentionally, but we distance people, technical people who need projects and jobs and, and interesting work from the people and companies and organizations and projects who can provide that job. And in that distance, we have recruiters. So the recruiters are sort of a kind of a glue, which is supposed to be a glue between technical people and projects, but uh, it's not a glue anymore. It's, it's, they are not working for us. They're working against us. That's what I see. So programmers, it's, it's getting more and more, it seems to be getting more and more difficult for programmers to find the right projects because, uh, because of the recruiters. And for the projects, it also seems to be more and more difficult to find the right talents because of recruiters. There are platforms who are trying to resolve that problem somehow, somehow, but they're not very effective now. They're not very helpful. That's what I experienced being on both sides. So we are recruiting people and I sometimes uh, get invitations from recruiters. They sometimes invite me to big companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, all that guys. And, and it always ends up badly. So it always ends up with some problems and, and never, um, it never gives me, uh, it never is a good experience. Let's put it this way. So I'm not saying that, that it's bad that I'm not with Google now and I'm not with Amazon now, even though I tried through, like recruiters tried to get me and I tried to, to get through their interviews. And I, I even published a blog post about that a few years ago, how I failed a number of interviews. And my failures were not because of my technical failures or because of my you know not enough skills and not because of the company was not suitable for me, but because of the mistakes the recruiters were making. And, um, and uh, it seems that we are, to summarize that, it seems that we need to find a way to get rid of recruiters as soon as possible. How it will be done, I'm not sure exactly, but it has to be done. And what would you say, so you said that recruiters are essentially this sort of glue, uh, keeping this, uh, you know, bridging these two worlds together. What, is there something else like, I mean, because we have all these communication technologies, we have all these platforms, we have all these ways to reach out to people, to check people's, you know, GitHub profiles, all this, all these sort of different ways to connect. Um, and yet it still seems like, you know, recruiters still serve a function. Um, but as you mentioned, it's it's not a very efficient process. So, what do you see as sort of I don't know what do you, what do you see as sort of the future of of that process? How does how's it going to evolve or change or or completely you know be different? I think I'm, I can't picture the entire future, but I can picture a number of elements of it. So, first of all, I think that we need some sort of a a uniform metric or a number of metrics which will help companies understand who they deal with. I mean, technical people and technical people will know what are the expectations of the companies right now. It's if the company is big enough, like like Facebook or Google, the interview takes the interview process takes weeks. It's a long process, sometimes even months, especially when the person is remote. So if there's if you're not 
you know, collocated with them, if you're in Europe and they are in California, that will take a month or a few months in order to to go through the uh, through the interview process. You will speak to a number of people, to a number of people. You will solve some technical tasks. You will do some um, some some discussions. You will pass some some I don't know psychological tasks or what they do. I don't know what it is, but it's a multi-step process, which is unpredictable first of all so you never know what's what's the next step they don't inform you it's 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 all they, they keep you in the dark in most cases you don't know what's going to happen next uh they keep asking the same questions over and over again i mean companies so when the one company interviews you and another company interviews you they keep asking not exactly the same questions but they keep you know testing you in the same areas uh, you keep traveling to them you keep going sitting in their offices meeting the people who don't know you who you don't know, who don't understand what you work on, who don't understand what your projects are about, who know nothing about you. And it's a really, you know, it's a process where only the worst people can pass through. That's my, that's my experience. So if you are a programmer, if you're a technical person and you're busy doing something interesting and you are happy with what you do now and you have enough of work on your plate right now, you're not sitting at home waiting for the, for the interview to call you, then you will be very disappointed by all this process because it will distract you. It will not give you any uh, 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 good promises. You will, you will, like I said, you will be kept in the dark for a long time. It will stress you a lot. And in the end, you will be, you will, the only thing you will want is to end it, no matter how. So get me on board or tell me that you are not a good fit for you, but just let's finish it somehow. That's that's my experience, and um, and I think it's it should be resolved by introducing some uh, uh, some metrics which will help companies to decide faster, to decide whether the person is is closer to the person they're looking for or far away, and there is no point in starting this this long interview process. How it could be done? We have already some we have already some platforms which may help us. For example, Stack Overflow. Some people are. Uh, are active there and they contribute a lot to this community and by just looking at their profiles you can tell who is good who is bad more or less so if you look at the profile and it has a lot of questions asked and a lot of answers given and a lot of upvotes there you most certainly will understand that uh, that person is capable of working with uh, with problems and resolving problems using these uh, public tools and public communities for some companies, it doesn't matter, but I think for the future, in the future, more and more companies will pay attention to that skills because we go open source, more and more companies, even big companies like Google and Facebook, they go open source, uh, they open more and more code like Microsoft is doing, Microsoft is doing it now too. So it will be important for them to work with people who know how to work with open communities and inside open communities. And that's why tools like GitHub, Stack Overflow, uh, I don't know what else do we have on the market, but things like that will be important uh, to see in the portfolio of a programmer. And we need to create some uniform metric, which will metric or instrument or certification or uh, method, which will analyze your profile and will give some summary, a very quick summary, which will help you to you know, which will help both sides to understand how close they are to their expectations. We don't have it right now. We don't have it right now, and companies don't really pay attention to that 
uh, to that public visibility as much as they should. So I think in the next five, 10 years, that should change. Companies will start paying attention to your public activity, to your open source activity, and we will have some tools on the market which will give you a, a quick summary, which will help you understand where you are now. For example, I'll give you a practical example. A few programmers uh, texted me yesterday. They found our company and our projects, uh, one project actually, which I'm recruiting right now for, and two people contacted me and the, 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 they started like, hey, I'm a, I'm a good programmer. I want to work with you. My first question is, can you give me your GitHub account? And they give me the GitHub account, and there is completely empty account for both people. Completely nothing there, just maybe one repository and no activity there. So my answer is, you know, you're too junior for us. And the answer, the, and, and, and they are really surprised, and they're saying, how do you know? And I'm saying, look, your profile is empty. How am I supposed to know? That's The information is right in front of me. And they say, no, 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 I'm working on some code which is, which is the, in the private repository. And I'm working on this code for 15 years. I'm a really good programmer. And I'm saying maybe for some company that would be enough. So as some company will say, sure, let's go through the full interview process. Let's take a look at your private code. Let's, let's have these months of discussions to find out whether you're a good programmer or not. And then we will take a risk after all these discussions to hire you. And then maybe you will succeed. But in our case, it's all faster. I'm just looking at your profile and I see that, that you're, you're just junior for us because you have no experience in working with public communities. You never showed your code in open source. You never showed it to random people, to, to, to strangers. That's why nobody ever criticized your code in an open market. Like, you know, one thing is criticizing your code of your friend and another thing is criticizing the code of someone who you don't know. In that case, it's way more aggressive. It's way more stressful. And if you have no experience in doing that, then, uh, then, then you're too junior. And they get offended by this word. Like, no, I'm not junior. I'm senior. I'm like 40 years old and I'm working on... Right. Yeah, that's, that's... And I understand their frustration because I'm probably the first person who is saying that to them. Because they've never heard that, because they used to have these long, long weeks of interviews where they present their private skills and the companies decide whether it's a good person or not. But in each case, it's individual decisions made by each company, which is a, you know, it's, it's a duplication of time. We, we, we waste our time because we do it again and again. You do it for Google, then you do it for Facebook, then you do it for your friend's company, then you do it for another company, and then on step number five, you get hired. But until, but when you reach that step number five, a good programmer will already give up and say, no, I'm, I'm fed up with this interview. Let me get back to the work I'm doing right now. So what we are getting in the end is that companies are getting not the best people. They're getting the people who are strong enough to stay for a long time in these interviews. Are they the best programmers? I doubt so. I'm wondering if, because as you mentioned just now, you made a good point where, you know, all these companies are putting all these people through the process. And very often it's the same person going through multiple processes. And it seems like if there was some way to um, connect that person to all those processes they went to without, you know, without giving away any company secrets. So it's sort of like um, saying, okay, this person has been through 10 processes. He's passed none of the processes. We can't tell you which companies or, or maybe give any specifics, but just so you know, the person you're inviting today for this interview has failed, you know, 10 times in a row to be recruited. Um, I could see something like that being sort of maybe created by companies between themselves 
um, you know, it's sort of like, okay, maybe this isn't the, the right direction, but what I'm saying is like, uh, and this is like totally the wrong direction, but where Facebook and Google uh, sort of decided not to pay people any more than a certain amount, um, where that was obviously wrong and, you know, illegal and stuff. But that's an example of where a company uh, and another, two companies basically got together and said, hey, let's make a deal. Now, I'm not saying make an illegal deal, but I'm saying if a bunch of major companies got together and said, listen, we, we keep interviewing. It seems like we're wasting a lot of each other's time. So, um, you know, I guess applying game theory, if we all just agreed to uh, anonymously sort of, you know, tag these people and then track them, then we'd all end up, you know, with better hires, I guess. Yeah, definitely that way. Yeah, and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a secret uh, database. I think everybody will benefit if that's if that information will become public and available to everybody. I mean, including the people, the programmers, and including the companies, because you know there are no there are no you know good people and bad people. There are just people who have enough skills and people who don't have enough skills yet. People grow, people improve, and people want to grow in general. So if we give them enough information about where they lack the right skills, where they need to improve, what's wrong with their profile right now, they will grow. The entire market will benefit from that. My experience, however, with, uh, with, with these big interviews, is that I've never get, get any feedback from them, from any interviews, from all interviews I've, 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 been, I've been through. So they never tell you what's wrong with you. They talk to you, they make some private decisions. You never know what this decision are based from, are based on. They never know what you're lacking in your profile. You just go home with the frustration and saying to yourself, I've never I'll I'll never gonna I'm never gonna go through this again because it's just a waste of my time. I don't get anything out of this process. I spend like a week or two weeks talking to the recruiters, discussing, setting some information about myself. And in the end, the answer is, you know, we found somebody who is better than you. I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. Have a nice day. That's all you get out of it. If we would open that information, if we would say that, you know, these are your metrics comparing to other candidates. These are your, this is the, the value of your profile. This is the number. You're getting like 75% out of 100 and these are the things you're missing. For example, your GitHub account is too weak for us, or you have no experience in, I don't know, Java projects, or you have no experience in, in this technology, or you have no uh, you know, official industry certificates for Java, or, or blah, different things. But you will know what's missing, and you will improve. And if people will improve, the entire market will benefit from that. What's happening now is that companies are only trying to pick the right people from the market and it's always a subjective decision which is not a beneficial for them either it's not good for companies because like i said they're only getting the the, the not the best people but the people who are just strong enough to stay with the interviews and and, and give the right answers and uh you know and look like a right person yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that's sort of one of those things. It's also a legal issue. Like where if they actually tell you why they're rejecting you, then it's like it can violate some law or something. So I, I think just, uh, yeah, recruitment seems to be trapped sometimes. It, it, it appears from the outside to, to be trapped by certain regulations and rules and just realities of, you know, processing personal data and information and sort of, um, I, I, I don't think there's obviously if there was an easy solution there that, that would have been come up with uh, would have been discovered already. Uh, okay, cool. All right. Um, now you are, of course, you're an author. You just released your fourth book. Um, so tell me what inspired you to write Code Ahead? Yeah, that's my fourth book and it's a fiction book. That's what makes it especially interesting. 
Uh, it's a it's not a novel maybe but uh, it's a prose about a number of people working in the same office and trying to solve uh, normal problems the problems with uh, writing code with testing with designing the architecture with understanding someone else's code with uh, using static analysis using unit testing using um, some devops procedures so it's like a normal a few weeks of life of a normal software group but at the same time, uh, it's not just a fiction of like a like a two two and a two hundred fifty pages of text. It also contains a lot of references to scientific, semi scientific, uh, academic, industrial uh, books about software development and and DevOps and testing and everything. So it's it contains over three hundred links to three hundred sources, which I suggest the reader to look at and to educate yourself. So it's like a combination of two of two um, of two styles. The first one is fiction, which is supposed to make the reader interested in in, in learning something and just following the uh, the plot. But at the same time, it gives many many uh, references to something which will help you to 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 educate yourself. I decided to use this format because uh, I wanted to explain in a book to summarize to put everything in one book which i wrote about for years on my blog and i spoke at my conferences talks and and, and in different and in different other places uh, all my thoughts about management and how people are supposed to to work in the team how we are doing it wrong now and what should be fixed i wanted to make a book which will explain all that and i understood that the best way to explain it is in some sort of dialogues, because that's how I usually uh, I usually uh, interact with my followers in forms of dialogues. Every time I write some article about management saying that this is wrong and that is wrong, for example, I, I strongly advocate against meetings in the office. So I'm saying that in my blogs and everywhere that I'm saying that uh, it's wrong to have so many meetings as we have now. It's a bad idea to resolve technical problems and find technical solutions through sitting in the meetings and, and discussing face-to-face. -face. I'm saying that professionals and people who know what they're doing, they are supposed to work with documentation, with source code, with some digital artifacts instead of meetings. So the meeting you need only when you cannot solve the problem through the digital artifact, when you cannot convince your, uh, um, your friend of the solution you're, you're proposing, you, that you cannot understand what your friend just did. That's why you need a meeting. But in the first place, why don't you understand? Why can't you convince? Because you're not professional enough, because it's, you're not strong, you don't have enough skills to put your thoughts in writing. That's one of the ideas. So every time I give that idea to public, I jump into the conversation and people ask me, how would I do it this way? How would I solve that problem? How would I do it uh, without meeting that particular problem? How would I solve this and that? So it's always a dialogue. And I realized that it maybe would be a good format for the book to make it in, in forms of the same dialogues I have in, in real life, where one character is claiming something and there are other characters saying that you're wrong because this and that, and that uh, protagonist has to convince them, has to explain it to them and make them you know, convinced. So that's why I decided to use that format, a fiction book. So it's the whole book is about how we are supposed to write our code so that the code will be used in the future. 
That's the major point of the book. That's why it's called code ahead. So we're supposed to think ahead, go ahead, drive ahead and code ahead. So we should be focused on the future of our code, not the present. So writing code and making the machine understand it, it's an easy task. We all know how to do that. But not so many people know and understand how to make the code live in the future, be in the future, stay in the future, so that other people can understand it. Other people can maintain it in the future. Other companies can reuse it. The code can be an open source area and all that stuff. That's why the name, that's what the main premise of the book. Okay. And as far, I mean, you're a very busy man. So how do you, how, how do you have time to, you know, write a book? I mean, where do you, is it late at night? Is it weekends? Is it, you know, how do you fit this in your schedule? <laughs> well, uh, th that book took a lot of time, to be honest. And uh, I usually try to write a few hours in the morning, like every day. That's my, that's my routine. So I wake up while my brain, while my brain is still fresh, right after the breakfast, I spend two hours, sometimes three hours for writing. I write books, I write blog posts, I write articles for a number of magazines. I write, uh, I have a few channels on, uh, on Telegram where I speak to, to my followers. I write a little bit for Twitter. I write a little bit for Facebook. So I spend like every day a few hours. And I think this is what any businessman should do, in my opinion. So it's, this is the way you, I think it's time now now it's the time of not just business man, but mostly about evangelists. So just being a businessman, just you know, building structures and building companies and just following business processes is not really enough. The main value an owner of the company, a leader of the company can give to the market uh, is through uh, the, the evangelizing the core idea of the company like you know spreading the idea uh convincing people around the idea is right uh, i don't know pushing it to the market and the best way to do it right now is through the media through the through the through the word through through the video content for example through podcasts so that's what i'm doing that's what i think i should do as a as an as a ceo of the company the book is one of the business instruments for me that's my point. Okay. What I want to talk about is, uh, of course, I've done a little bit of research on on your company, and uh, it's it's quite interesting. And uh, I want to start out with, uh, first of all, uh, this is a key question, I think, for today's conversation is, uh, what is extremely distributed software development, and how is it different from continuous delivery, model-driven development, uh, et cetera? Yeah, this um, extremely distributed software, XDSD, as we call it, is the methodology which we started to practice um, 80 years ago, and the core concept, the core, the, the, the core principle of this uh, methodology is that everybody is paid by the result. In all other traditional, not traditionally, all other methodologies, uh, they usually don't mention that at all. They say something about how we communicate. They explain how we uh, communicate with customers, how we work with documentation, how we uh, deliver the software, how we continuously integrate it, how much attention we pay to testing and all that stuff. It's all important, but we believe that the most important question in any software project, in any project at all, is how its participants are being paid. 
because we think that money is the driving factor of any business we do and how money, how we distribute money among project participants is the most important question to ask. And this is what drives everything else, the quality, the communication, uh, the delivery, the, 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 the final result, the milestones, everything, the timeline. Agile doesn't say anything about that. Waterfall doesn't say anything about it. Kanban, no, none of them. We started to 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 um, we started to uh, to emphasize that idea inside our methodology, and we said that it's important that everybody is paid by the result, not by the time they spend. So, in all traditional software projects, programmers and everybody else, testers, engineers, architects, they are all paid by the end of the week, by the end of the month, which, in our opinion, makes causes all the troubles we have now in our projects with the quality with the failures and everything we all know that the majority of software projects the vast majority of software projects fail in the world according to statistics some of them fail completely some of them just miss the deadlines the miss the the, the budgets and overrun the budgets but they they fail like 90 or something 90 plus percent of them actually fail we think that it, it happens because programmers are not interested to deliver the results they are interested to stay in the project for as long as they can. And that's why the project takes longer. That's why the quality is low. That's why, that's why. Everything else is that's why. Programmers are interested. The, the interests of programmers go against the interests of project sponsors. The project sponsor wants to finish the project, wants to spend as little as possible, wants to stop the development and bring the project to the, the product to the market. Programmers want to keep the project alive for as long as they can to keep getting the money. There are two opposite interests which, which have the fundamental conflict. And because of that conflict, it's impossible to achieve anything, you know, anything uh, of high, which is close to high quality. That's why the entire industry right now, according to our experience, spend tens, hundreds times more on software development than it really costs. We, we, we spend, I mean, we, we solve problems by money. We spend way more resources, I mean, financial resources for resolving the problems which cost in reality, which have to cost way less. That's why we introduced the methodology, which is suggesting to pay everybody by the results. And then the question, the question arises, how is it possible to do? How can you actually measure the results? And that is the answer we've been trying to answer for the last uh, eight years. We're creating instruments for that. We're creating uh, AI software, I mean, AI uh, tools for that. We're creating robots to help us predict the amount of work to do and somehow connect the money to the results so that everybody will get their money when the result is delivered. Definitely. I mean, uh, one thing I'm I'm in support of this idea of, of of reducing sort of development time, just because I've seen some of these bizarre cost overruns. Where you know the 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 most famous case in the recent, let's say, last decade was this uh, project. Uh, the U.S. government uh, spent a, a billion dollars on this uh, apparent you know this website for managing health data. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, you know, how much money would would using your approach have saved the U.S. government? Well, we, we did an experiment three years ago when I was working in, uh, in a, in a co-located project with a traditional development model where everybody were paid by the time. 
And, um, and I compared that project with a, another one, which was developed in our methodology, where everybody was paid by the result. The sizes of these projects were comparatively similar. So they were almost the same amount of functionality, almost the same amount of lines of code, almost the same amount of features. And, um, and I compared the amount of money they spent. And I wrote a blog post about that about four years ago, I think. The difference was 30 times. So it was 30 times more cost-effective to use our methodology comparing to the traditional model. So if you get that US government project for $1 billion, you can divide it by 30, and that would be approximately the amount of money which programmers deserved in that project. The rest of the money they got for something which they didn't do. Is it good for programmers? Maybe. Is it good for their managers? Maybe. But I think that on a long run, for good programmers, for people who are really honest and interested in, you know, in being good programmers, it would be better to give them the 130 part of that money, let them complete the project effectively, fast, uh, properly, and, and move to the next project and use the rest of the money to do something else, to do something, you know, the next, to, to make the next step. Instead of that, we're just burning money on people doing nothing, sitting in their offices, just, just wasting time and waiting till the end of the month. It's, it's, I think it's bad for both sides, for their sponsors, for the U.S. government who spent that, uh, the taxpayers' dollars, and for programmers who were spending their life sitting in boring offices, not motivated to deliver any result, just motivated to wait till the end of the month. I think it's a double-sided. Pro- I mean, it's a, it's it's a problem on both sides. So if we're t- okay, let me just try to compare this uh, conversation to you know if you have the oil industry and and you have you know alternative energies like solar power and stuff. It seems sort of like what you're talking about is right now you're trying to introduce you know the electric car into the standard uh, car industry, and you're getting a lot of backlash. You're getting people that are saying you know you know this isn't going to work. This is the wrong approach and everything like that. Um, what are some of the really sort of, I guess, harsh criticisms that you've gotten from people where they've just, you know, emotionally responded to what you're saying and sort of tried to defend the status quo? Well, the, the typical answer is that we're not monkeys. I mean, don't tell us what, because our, you know, our approach is based on when you're trying to, when you're trying to, to pay people by results, when you're trying to manage programmers by uh, measuring their results and paying them by what they do, uh, you have to do it in micro steps. You have to do micro testing, as, micro tasking, as we call it. So we have to uh, to break down the, the big scope into small components and then give that components these tasks to people and let them finish them fast uh, one by one. That's how you make it manageable. That's how you can pay them by result. Because uh, if, you, if you tell them that your result for this month is this, and I'm going to pay you by the end of the month that amount of money, if you complete that result, then you will have a huge conflict by the end of the month. Because it will be very difficult to judge whether the result is there or result is not there. Because there will be many, many uh, excuses, many, many uh, causes of, of, of delays and it will be difficult to say that you're not paid at all by the end of the month because everyone has their expenses and they need the money so like physically to 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 pay their bills so that's impossible what is possible to do in order to pay by results 
is to break down this one month's work into, let's say, uh, 100 pieces. And then these 100 pieces will, will fit like five pieces a day because you have 20 working days. So you have five small pieces per day. And if you measure the result by, by the end of each piece, then it will be possible to say that the piece number 27 is not completed. That's why you're not going to get your uh, a, few, a few dollars or so, maybe a few you know, hundred dollars. Because in that case, the risk is small and, it, and the risk of losing you know, money, that's pretty small, pretty, pretty reasonable. And it, it, will be, it will be easier to judge uh, whether the result is, you know, uh, satisf is satisfying the requirements or not. But when you break down the, the scope into small pieces, people, when they join our system, they feel, they think that we are, we are going to treat them as, as they say, it, as monkeys, like monkeys who are supposed to do like small pieces of work here and there, instead of sitting for a full month, thinking, dreaming, creating, uh, I mean, not thinking, yeah, designing uh, and all that stuff because they're so creative people. Instead, we're giving them micro steps, micro tasks, and asking them to deliver their, their, their ideas and their code and their, their software in small increments. They say it's, it's offensive. That's a pretty typical response. But the reality shows that uh, only junior programmers, inexperienced programmers, are thinking that way. For professional programmers who enjoy working in a disciplined environment, who enjoy staying in the in the in the software project, which is uh, which is managed which is managed properly, which which knows where we're going and which appreciates the results, actually the results, not the time, then those programmers uh, actually are happy in our environment. And also, I mean, you can't really say that <clears throat> just because someone is paid, you know, for for doing a, a a micro task that they're less skilled. I mean, if you think about a, if you think about a surgeon performing, you know, performing surgery, um, they're pretty much paid for that task, right? I mean, they're they're paid to to do that surgery. Yeah, they're not paid. They're not paid in some other scale or some other way. And obviously, they're very highly skilled and very highly respected. So, I think maybe also what I feel like is that um, you're trying to take software development from being sort of an alchemic process where someone, you know, disappears into a room and then comes out, you know, comes, comes out with a gold bar and you're trying to make it more scientific and you're trying to say, okay, what are the actual parts of this project? And, and, you know, how, how, how can I reduce this project to little itty bitty micro tasks uh, that, that can be counted, can be tracked and can be analyzed uh, after the fact. Yeah, exactly. I even have a video about that. It's called No Altru uh, No Magic. So in this video, I'm saying, there's a, a small interview. There I'm saying that it's a very traditional view of a software development, like, like you said, the alchemic process, where there is some magic involved. And when you sponsor the software project, when you are the customer, then you're not supposed to know how we create that. It's some, something, some very creative process, which we, we, even we don't know how it works. It just works. We just sit together in the room. We drink a lot of coffee. Uh, we hit the keyboard, and somehow, maybe if if the the stars are in the right position, then maybe by the end of the week or at the end of the month or a year, some super gold bar shows up. I think it's a it's it's a uh, uh, it's a picture which is very um, very beneficial for programmers. 
to, to present it that way for bad programmers mostly, for undisciplined programmers, for chaotic programmers, for non-skilled programmers. Because if, if you present it that way, the customer doesn't know what's going on, doesn't know how to control you, doesn't know how, uh, how to understand what you're doing, doesn't know anything. So all the customer can do is just fund the project, bring the money in until the, the, until the, 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 the wallet is empty, until there is no money. And then you just find another customer. So it's a good, it's a good presentation of our profession I'm a programmer as well, so it's a good presentation of our profession because we can we can fool the customers, but it's really not the right way to do it if if we let's if we want to be you know true professionals. But this is what happens in most projects and most software teams. They they think they present their work as the work of magicians, as the work of artists, but in reality it's not. The majority of code we write is not the art. It doesn't require any creativity. It doesn't require any innovation. We innovate sometimes, but that's just a few percent of our, of our work time. The rest of the time, we just implement what needs to be implemented. We test, we fix bugs, we implement new features, we add new functionality, we fix, we implement, we fix, we implement. We do the routine work, which, is, which can and should be um, controlled, disciplined, organized, orchestrated, just like any other work in in the you know in the world. Let's step even uh, let's step even further into this. I want to ask about uh, this this idea here. What is puzzle driven development, and and how did you come up with this idea? Yeah, that's that's the idea we invented again like years ago. Um, in order to solve the problem of decomposing the bigger task. So what to do when the task is too big and uh, how, can you, how can you actually technically break down the bigger problem into smaller pieces? That would take a lot of time. That's the concern everybody has uh, who is coming to our project, who, to, to our team initially. Like how can you break down the task of a size of 100 hours into smaller pieces where each piece is like one or two hours of work? That's impossible. It's possible. It will take a lot of time. So who's going to do that work? That's the first question. Like who will sit down and break it down into pieces? And how can we know that that person does does it right? Because you cannot know upfront when there is a huge work in front of you. You don't know exactly what the pieces will be because it's it's almost impossible to predict. But that's why we invented this puzzle-driven development. Here, this is how it works. Let's say you're a programmer and you get a task of 100 hours. I mean, it's a large task. You don't know even how many hours it will require. It's just a large task of implementing a huge, big new functionality in the system. But we want to pay you by the result, and that's why we want your result to be small, like one hour of work or two hours of work. So what we do in our projects is we give you a fixed budget. So we tell you, you have just exactly one hour of work, and we will pay you for one hour. So the task is huge, but you have a budget of one hour. So we're not going to pay you more, no matter how much time you spend. And then we allow you to open up the, the code, to start working on this task, to understand that the problem is way bigger than one hour, and then move forward a little bit, like implement a little, you know, sm some, something, a little bit of something in the code. And then the rest, which you cannot implement because you, you don't have time, you, mark, you put the markers in the code and say, this is to be done later. This one I didn't have time to do, but has to be done later. This is not tested, but it has to be tested. And so on and so on. So you put markers, which we call puzzles. So you put puzzles for the future inside the code. And you return your code back. 
by the end of the hour, and we merge your code into the repository. We accept your code with a small change and the big amount of puzzles. And then we automatically, using our software, we convert that puzzles to new tasks and give that tasks to you or to some other programmers. So by that approach, we let you be the task creator. We let you be the, 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 the decomposer of the scope. So we don't have any, any assigned person who is sitting in the office and just decompose the task into pieces. Each programmer does that. Each programmer, when the task is bigger than an hour or bigger than the budget that programmer has, ha it has an ability to break it down into smaller pieces and return that pieces to us, which we will convert to tasks and give to somebody else. That we call puzzle-driven development. So when the project starts, we have many, many of those puzzles, and the entire project is, is driven forward by puzzles created by programmers. Now, that sounds good, but I've got a question mm -hmm. that just came up in my head. I'm thinking about this. What do you, how do you, sort of, how do you identify uh, an unethical developer who who, and I don't know if you're applying game theory or whatever, but like, you know, what if they say, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to make like 20 puzzles here and I'm going to make these, you know, I'm going to uh, sort of, I'm going to, I'm going to make it easier for the next person. So I'm going to, uh, I mean, can, can they do that? Is by the creating these puzzles, are they, are they dictating how many hours of work this should take or should not take? Or is that something else that's done somewhere else in the pipeline? Well, there are many, there are many, many possible ways to abuse the system. Of course, you can, for example, create no code and just puzzles. In that case, you will basically spend. I mean, you will basically not move the system forward at all. You will just create puzzles, so there will be zero contribution from you and just puzzles for the future. Or you can, uh, like you said, you can create puzzles which have no meaning, like simple stuff, which will be, you know, which will cause the system to create. Uh, tasks which will be easy to, to to fix. It happens. It happens, but the the amount of that that situations is really small. They are they happen like maybe less than a percent of the total amount of tasks. And keep in mind that every time you create something, you create some puzzles, you create some code, you have to return that code to us to the to the to the mainstream to the master branch, and you will have to pass two code reviews. So there will be some code reviewer in front of you who will check your code and, and, and reject it if there is some, something wrong there. If, for example, there is no code and just puzzles. Or, and then there will be the architect who will also review your code after the code reviewer. And the architect will also has an ability to stop you and, and reject your code and ask you to, you know, to improve it somehow. So it's, it's possible to abuse the system, but having in place a number of code reviews um, you will hardly succeed in, in that in that illegal activity. Definitely. Okay. Cool. Um, now, tell me about traceability. How what is traceability, and how does it connect it to software development? Yeah, that's a perfect perfect question. Um, uh, like I said before, I strongly believe that maintainability is the core, is the key success factor factor of software development. This is the main uh, the main virtue. Of a good project. So if the project is if the project is maintainable, it is good, not fast, not you know st stress resilient, not I don't know robust, not elegant as a you know the, the code is elegant or so, but maintainable. What's important is how easy a new team of programmers can understand the code you write right now. That's the core. That's the the, the main. Uh, the main factor of success. That's what I believe. Because 
because and because. Uh, the traceability is the, the key component of maintainability. So traceability, as far as I understand, is an ability of a programmer to understand where and why the changes are coming from. So what caused that particular change in that particular line of code? Who initiated it? Why? What was the reason? Where I can find the discussion about that change? Where I can find uh, the discussion of the change which, which led us to this change? And so on and so on. So the more traceable our changes are, the easier it is to start from a line of code and go up to the business decision behind that change, the better the code. Unfortunately, the majority of projects do not have that. I have a little bit of promotion now. I have um, uh, a, a quality award, an annual quality award, which I organize every October, every year. This year is going to be the year number four. And I invite open source projects to these competitions. They just, I invite everybody, like all open source projects in the world, to submit their stuff to my competition. And then I invite volunteers to review that, that, that software projects. And then I review the best of them. And then the one I pick, the one I decide who is the best out of them, I give $4,000 of my own money as, an, as, a, as, a, as a prize for, for the creator of that project. Uh, and the most, the, the, the key, the most important thing I pay attention to when I review those projects is their uh, traceability. So I look at the codes. I don't really pay a lot of attention to how beautiful, how, how you know, correct is the code by itself or what it does. But I pay attention how disciplined is the, the development environment. Most projects are on GitHub, not most, but all projects are on GitHub. So I pay attention to, do you make your changes through pull requests? Do you, ref do you make links between your changes and issues, and, and from pull requests to issues? Do you explain your changes? Do you uh, connect your issues to the, to the business documentation? So I'm, lo I'm looking, I'm trying to look at how traceable the projects are and how, like I said, how easy it is for me as a stranger to look at your code and immediately understand why did you make the change number 14 three months ago. That's, I think, is very important, not only for me as a reviewer of the project, but for the team who is working in the project. That's the key success factor. Great. And now, talking about, um, talking about sort of this, this, this process that you have for, for developing software um, and breaking tasks down into microtasks, uh, tell me a little bit about sort of the areas um, and professions where, or for example, graphic design you mentioned in, in your blog, uh, where, where you can't really break a task down, where you had trouble breaking a task down. Yeah, that's true. Some, some areas exist. That's, that's definitely true. So you cannot really break down, like decompose the bigger problem into smaller ones in all possible areas. That's just not possible. It's just, it just doesn't work according to our experience. It doesn't work in graphic design, for example, because it is maybe, maybe I'm just, I'm just guessing, maybe because it is an artistic work, because maybe it, it requires uh, some creativity which you cannot uh, decompose into pieces. Or another area is uh, designing the architecture, designing the skeleton of, of a product. In that case, you also cannot break it down into pieces. Even though we tried that a few years ago, we tried to force our architects to, uh, to design the skeleton moving forward in small increments. But it didn't work because you never know, 
you, because you need to experiment, you need to, to delete everything and start from scratch. You need to, uh, to, to, really, uh, to really be creative, which is, not, which is not possible to break down into pieces. There, there are many, most probably there are many other areas. Like you said, the surgeon work. So you definitely can say that when you complete the surgery, then your task is done. But if you go into and start directing the surgeon of how to do the surgery, then maybe the surgeon will say that it's not possible because, because the, the, the doctor doesn't know exactly, in, in most situations, doesn't know exactly what's going to happen next. And maybe they have to improvise, they have to be sometimes creative. So that kind of work uh, may not be applicable to, to microtasking. But like I said before, software development needs creativity, needs some artistic approach in in 1% of, of the entire uh, project time and project budget. Which of your projects on GitHub um, are you most sort of okay with showing people as saying, of all the things I've talked about today, here's where you can see it in this project? Um... That's a good question. Sort of trace, traceability, quality, all this. Like, which project on GitHub are you most proud of as, as reflecting sort of your standards? Um, most probably it's um, uh, Cactus. Cactus is the, the Java framework, which, is, um, which was designed initially by myself as an architect. So I did like a skeleton. And then now it's a team of developers of over 20 people who are... Uh, working on the product for the last year or so and the product is still robust still solid still very traceable still maintainable so i think i'm proud of that that we are we we, we managed to to keep the product under control the quality under control we keep the the maintainability under control and um, if you look at that product you will most certainly be uh i would say surprised by the quality of code we have there it's not a complex project. It's it, it, there is no there, there, there are no like uh, complex design patterns or some complex algorithms, but there are a few hundred of classes, a few hundred of unit tests. It's pretty well covered covered by unit testing by by unit by by tests, uh, automated tests, unit tests, integration tests, and um, yeah, I would suggest to look at that project definitely. It's called Cactus, C-A-C-T-O-O-S. And we'll put, of course, I'll get all your links and yeah, put thanks. them in, into the article, of course. Um, I've got another question uh, as, we're, as we're getting toward the end here is, uh, you're, you're in support of developers writing blogs, um, but of course, there's so many of these blogs written by developers. What can someone do uh, that's, uh, who's a developer who wants to write a blog that actually stands out in a good way and you know, isn't, isn't lost in the mass? Well, that's, that's a perfect question. A friend of mine asked that question to me uh, two years ago, and I, I tried to answer it. And, and, and then I, after two days of conversations, I realized that I have so many recommendations that it's probably to be better to write a book about that. So I wrote a book two years ago, which is called uh, 256 Blog Hacks, uh, which summarizes all my experience about blogging, which gives all the possible hints and tricks about what you do in order to be, like you said, stand out in the area of all other software development blogs. So there is no one single recommendation, but I will still try to, to make one. I think that the, key, that the key success factor is 
that you uh, maybe two factors. The first one, you have to have a point. So you have to have your own strong point. So don't just blog about everything because you like to blog, because you like to write. In this case, you will not be really, um, they will not really see you. But make a strong point. So write about something which you believe in, which you think it distinguishes you from other people and which you want to emphasize every day in your articles. And the second one, be provocative. So be as strong as you can in your opinions. So if you think that, uh, for example, uh, like I do, like for example, uh, global variables is something that is not supposed to be in our code. But at the same time, I do realize that sometimes we may need them. Sometimes global variables is a solution for some sort of problems. And I do use them sometimes, even though I don't, I don't, I'm not very proud of that. But there are situations where I can use them. But when I write a blog article, I don't say maybe. I don't say sometimes. I say never. I say never use them. They are completely evil, like strongly, provocatively emphasize the point, which some people disagree with. But this is what makes a good blogger. I think so. That you need to be that you need to be uh, as strong as you can with your opinions. That's what will that's what will help people to make their own decisions. They will know that there is one guy who is saying that global variables are a complete evil thing, and there are other people who are saying that they are good things. So now it's my turn to make a decision, and the decision will be somewhere in the middle, and that somewhere in the middle will help. You know, will will produce a code of good quality. I think so. But there should be opinions on the market who are strong enough in order to lead the market to a certain direction. So to summarize, if you want to be a blogger, make a point and be provocative about that. Make it strong. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Igor, that was a great conversation. Uh, you were totally right in the fact that you said that those questions I sent you, there were so many that we wouldn't be able to cover them. We covered maybe five, six questions. Uh, great answers, great conversation. I want to thank you very much for being part of the Yelduck uh, podcast family and being one of our guests. Uh, if you have anything that you want to say as we close out the podcast, go ahead. Uh, just, just, just let me ask the listeners to check my blog. There's everything there which I mentioned here, and there's way more. So check the blog. You definitely will have it on the show notes. And uh, become my follower. Thank you. Okay, great. Awesome. Thank you, Igor. Enjoy the rest of your day there. I'm guessing you're in California, and, uh, and uh, I hope to uh, stay in contact. Thank you very much.